This is the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. I'm Jamie Smart, and today I'm joined by Paul Miles, Professor of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at Monash University and the Alfred Hospital here in Melbourne. Professor Miles is the co-author of an editorial accompanying a paper published in this week's The Lancet, which looks at mortality and pulmonary complications in COVID-19 positive patients undergoing surgery. Thank you for your time, Paul. Thanks, Jamie. This trial published by the COVID Surge Collaborative Group seems important to me in both its scale and its timing. Could you start by giving us an overview of this trial and of its key findings? Okay, thanks, Jamie. First, I'd like to acknowledge my co-author on the editorial, Salome Maswimi, who uh, comes from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, I think this was a really important study. What they did is they, they used a registry uh, web-based data collection process across uh, a, a global network of hospitals. So I think there are over 200, yes, 235 hospitals in 24 countries. And they instituted the project um, as the pandemic was evolving around, around the world. So um, a lot of the patients initially obviously came from the uh, high-impact countries, uh, Italy, UK, um, and the US. Um, but as I said, many, many more countries were involved. And they collected some data retrospectively, but most of it was done live or, or prospectively uh, in the first few months of the pandemic. And what they uh, asked sites to do was to identify patients who were diagnosed with COVID-19 uh, in the week before surgery or up to 30 days after surgery. So the COVID diagnosis itself may have occurred pre or post-operatively. And the findings were quite startling. What they found was more than half of all patients that they identified had a very serious respiratory complication and just under a quarter had died within 30 days of surgery. So that's the, the major findings of the study. So look, in your editorial, you point out a number of problems that I guess are inherent with a, a trial such as this, like a lack of control group and the lack of standardisation of some of the protocols that they used. Do these issues in any way lessen the impact of the paper? I don't think the impact. They certainly would uh, influence uh, the, the main um, numerical results in terms of what the actual risk estimates were because it's likely that the uh, investigators across all these countries um, may well have missed many asymptomatic or, um, cases or even mild cases of COVID-19 and therefore, uh, their methodology tends to um, overestimate um, the seriousness of some of the adverse complications, but probably doesn't re uh, meaningfully change uh, the relative risks of the different types of surgical or patient characteristics that was associated with uh, a, a very poor outcome. For instance, older patients were uh, more than twice as likely to die of serious complications compared to younger people. Uh, those of higher ASA physical status, or in other words, more comorbidity, were more likely to have serious adverse outcomes and so forth. So I think those findings are probably reliable. But in terms of the actual numbers, I think we have to be a bit more circumspect. But the impact of the study, I think, is, is still uh, very, very important. I think it is a, a reminder that COVID-19 can be a serious infection in certain patient groups um, by having surgery, and this was both elective and non-elective surgery, 
you set the patient up for not only the um, viral pneumonia that uh, can occur or usually occurs with COVID-19, but equally all the other perioperative complications that otherwise might happen. Uh, and we do know that certainly older people and those with comorbidity are at higher risk of respiratory complications more generally, higher risk of death and so on. So we've now got this perfect storm where, in fact, they're um, having to um, survive through the, the normal risks of surgery. And on top of that, the, co the co-infection, which will exacerbate everything. Uh, the two classic physiological responses of surgery, that being an inflammatory response and a prothrombotic state in the early post-operative period. Uh, both of these features are the hallmarks of uh, COVID-19 itself. So all of this is happening at the same time. Uh, so therefore, I think the message for surgeons and other perioperative physicians is to be much more, I think, cautious about whether or not surgery should be offered, uh, whether or what sort of screening should be put in place to detect asymptomatic or presymptomatic coronavirus infection, uh, and obviously then think about what types of risk mitigation strategies could happen in, in circumstances where the diagnosis is made postoperatively and what can be done to uh, reduce that course of illness. So one of the more alarming statistics to me relates to elective surgery. I think 25% roughly of the patient group had elective surgery and the mortality rate in those patients was nearly 20%. We're currently seeing a lot of discussion from professional bodies and, and patient advocate groups about the need to restart or ramp up elective surgery. How do the findings in this trial inform the way that we should reopen hospitals to elective surgery? Well, I think the first thing, again, is it's, I think, a warning call that we can't do that without serious consideration of the risks and benefits. Uh, I think part of that consideration must include what the uh, seroprevalence rate is in any particular region or, or country of the world uh, because obviously where there are very low prevalence rates as there are currently in Australia and New Zealand then I think it's perfectly rational reasonable to uh, carefully reintroduce um, greater amounts of surgery. Uh, that may not be the case in other parts of the world where in fact there still seems to be ongoing spread of disease uh, and a high burden of undiagnosed uh, people in the community. So that's, that's the first thing. The next thing, of course, is um, what sort of surgeries might be deemed more important than others. Now, there's often categorization systems for surgery. Obviously, cancer surgery typically um, should be done much earlier than, say, um, say joint replacement surgery, for instance, uh, or some other types of surgery. Um, a cesarean section it literally cannot be delayed, has to occur in a certain time frame. So it, it, some of it needs to happen, but some of it, could and should be put off until the pandemic is clearly under better control uh, and perhaps in some cases um, not until the vaccine um, is developed. Um, the next thing, most important thing, I think, is uh, what the supply chains are like for personal protective equipment. Again, this varies in different parts of the world quite dramatically. Uh, clearly, uh, for, the benefit, for the health and benefit and safety of healthcare workers themselves, they need to be both well-trained, uh, properly equipped um, with equipment, um, and I think be included in any considerations. And again, the circumstances might make surgery uh, more supportable than perhaps in other places. So I think they're, they're the key things that need to be put together. 
I don't think the decision can be made only by government or only by um, professional bodies. I think it needs a consensus um, informed by good epidemiology uh, and public health um, experts. Uh, but I think at, uh, with all of those considerations, I think uh, in, certainly in many parts of the world, elective surgery itself can be uh, re uh, recommenced um, at least in a controlled way uh, and then monitoring the results of that over time. Hmm. Now, look, we work in a, a major tertiary hospital and we now have the capacity to look after a la large number of very ill patients should they arrive. So given that there are still cases of coronavirus in the community, should large public hospitals such as ours have a different approach to reopening elective surgery than, say, private hospitals? Well, I think uh, the mantra that's come from what I would label as the genuine experts in epidemiology and public health is to test, test and test. Unless we know um, what the prevalence rate is, um, the risk estimates, um, uh, the likeliness of, uh, of a transmission occurring within the hospital setting, uh, we're actually going uh, forward, I think, blind and, and, and you, you do in places are paying price for that. Um, my view is that some level of screening is required for both elective and non-elective surgery. Uh, that might be more simple things like history of recent travel and um, recent contacts, um, obviously, um, temperature testing and, uh, and asking about symptoms of flu-like illnesses are, are key things and it's simply done and should be done. Um, uh, then the decision becomes, well, should all patients be tested? Um, I think in a high prevalence environment, um, I would argue that that should happen as a routine because even if the surgery is essential, then um, the patient can be isolated, the staff can have upgraded levels of PPE and then you're in a, a safer possible environment. Uh, elective surgery should almost certainly be cancelled wherever possible um, uh, until the patient, uh, the person has actually uh, recovered and been shown to recover from the coronavirus infection. Okay, so it's, it's also clear to me that most governments and health services were not adequately prepared for a pandemic such as this. Given the global world we live in and the very real likelihood that we could experience a similar situation in the future, how can we use the information in a trial like this one and, and others that are likely to follow to, uh, to plan for future pandemics should they arise? Well, it's been said many times that, you know, if, if, you know, if people, if you don't learn from history, then you're doomed. Uh, that, I think, is relevant in this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, parts of the world were hit hard by both the SARS uh, and MERS uh, epidemics uh, and equally even bird flu. Um, those countries or regions that had a high exposure in that period have been shown to, in fact, be far better prepared than other parts of the world with the current uh, coronavirus um, two pandemic. So we simply must learn from history, learn from experience, um, having um, a high quality public health um, agencies, um, procedures in place, both at government uh, and even hospital levels, um, a capacity to quickly um, either upskill, equip, uh, perhaps with simulator training and otherwise, uh, what's required of any future pandemic. Um, uh, but, but also, of course, to have these built in as procedural um, 
um, components that, that can be tapped into both for a particular hospital or country, but perhaps shared across across the world. And like, a, like many other institutions around the world, we here have been doing a lot of training, a lot of simulation when we when we realised that this this pandemic was was um, amongst us. Do you think that sort of training and simulation should be an ongoing thing? I think so. I think um, I think um, anesthesiology as a specialty, I think, is uh, highly regarded for a focus on safety and simulation training. Uh, I think uh, if we model and practice the uh, steps required for any particular technical skill or um, even non-technical and and other uh, procedural activities, projects and so on within a hospital, um, uh, we see that in fact people are more confident, uh, they better understand how to do things properly, how to communicate concerns across uh, the team and, and other specialties. Um, uh, there will be, there, there simply will be pandemics in the future. They may be airborne, they may be bloodborne, they may be, uh, you know, done through other ways. Um, so yes, we must be prepared. Uh, some, as I said before, some countries uh, learnt a lot from previous epidemics, uh, and I and I think they've been far better prepared and had far better results in terms of very low rates of transmission and so on in their own communities. They never returned back towards normal in terms of healthcare delivery, particularly elective surgery. Uh, that now seems to be happening quite nicely in Australia and I think New Zealand and and other parts of the world as well. But that's in part because they those places were far better prepared. Uh, they had procedures in place. Um, some had capacity to actually do the simulator training that I think helps certainly when uh, staff are unfamiliar with you know, changes or improvements in PPE and so on. Now, I know you're a busy man. You're involved in a, a number of high-level committees and ongoing international trials relating to COVID-19. What data and outcomes would you like to see to help government and medical communities prepare for any future pandemics to improve healthcare worker safety and to decrease perioperative risk to patients? Well, I think there's still so much to learn about the COVID-19 pandemic and that will play out over time. I think a lot of learnings are happening right now. Um, in anesthesiology, a particular concern, of course, is aerosol-generating procedures and in particular tracheal intubation. Uh, I'd like to put a you know, signal out to uh, the Intubate COVID um, registry. That's an international registry established uh, by Danny Wong and Karim Elbeke-Godlady in in London uh, and now being run across the world and including here in Australia to actually um, again uh, monitor um, COVID-19 intubations and then following up the intubator and the uh, the assistant uh, for any uh, possibility of um, transmission and, and COVID-19 illness uh, in the weeks that follow uh, and that's now I know collected data on more than 5,000 intubations, I think that will be a really important study. And we, we've got some data already available. Uh, a lot more will come over the next few months. So we'll learn a lot from that. And I think any systematic collection of good quality data is going to inform us a lot better than anecdote. Um, the other project I'm involved is, there's two big national ones happening in Australia. One, of course, is the um, Living Evidence Guidelines Group, uh, run through Monash University. Uh, and they're actually updating um, all guidelines and, and systematic reviews around uh, new information that comes out around COVID-19 
uh, literally on a daily, if not weekly basis. So, you know, for instance, uh, whether or not hydroxychloroquine has benefits or risks or remdesivir or other treatments or even procedural things are all included in that guideline. So I recommend you look up that on, on the internet. Uh, and lastly, of course, the um, Commonwealth Government here in Australia is interested in actually tracking seroprevalence, particularly in the surgical population. And that, and that, that project is starting um, later this week across um, 14 hospitals in Australia. And that will give us a sense of uh, the data in the Australian context of the uh, prevalence of, um, uh, of the coronavirus in, uh, in surgical patients. Okay, Paul, well, thank you for all of your hard work on that and thank you for your time. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh-huh.